Hello, friends. And welcome once again, everybody, to another episode of Improv and Magic. As you know, I'm your host, L.D. Madera, and I am very excited about my guest today. I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of inspirational people on this podcast, but I have to say, today's guest has one of the most inspirational stories I've ever heard. He lives by the motto, being different is your superpower, and his name is John Kippen. John is a magician, a motivational speaker, and a master storyteller. He is a performer at the world-famous Magic Castle in Hollywood and has been featured in various publications such as International Magic Magazine, Genie, CEO Weekly, and Red X. And in July 2019, John appeared as a speaker for TEDx. In 2021, John Kippen's documentary titled John's Ultimate Illusion was voted Best Inspirational Documentary at the Doc LA Film Festival. His documentary is a glimpse into his life and features appearances from other amazing people, including Jamie Lee Curtis. In our conversation today, you'll hear how in 2002, John's life was changed forever. But thanks to magic, he regained his self-confidence and learned to love life again. In his performances, he uses his life experience to show how anyone can turn their differences into superpowers. John was such a pleasure to talk to, and he shares a couple of amazing moments in his career, like the time he was called to provide IT support for Siegfried and Roy. That's a great story. And later on in the conversation, he also shares his love for improv and how the techniques and tools of improvisation can be very beneficial to magicians. This man touched my heart so much. And I hope you all feel as inspired as I was. Here now is my special guest, John Kippen. My friends, I'm joined by one of the most inspirational magicians I've had the pleasure of meeting. He's an amazing guy with so many superpowers. He is John Kippen. Hello, John. How are you? Good morning. Doing well. How are you? I'm doing absolutely fantastic. It's uh, it's really it's really great to meet you. I think that you are a very inspirational person, and I think you have a wonderful story to share. So thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. So why don't we get to the beginning? Where did you grow up, and what was growing up like for you? Well, I uh, grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, I had two attorneys as parents, only child, so I was spoiled. <laughs> um, my parents did well, so I went to a ritzy private school called the Buckley School, um, where I think there were 20 or 25 kids for class. Um, but I learned how to think creatively there. Uh, learned how to think outside the box. So um, after after high school, I went to Cal State Northridge, uh, and I was a theater major, where I acted. But then I also got very heavily into tech, the technical side of theater. 
which also led to my abilities to uh, create a problem solve. And I think that that, if you were to ask me, hey, John, what is one characteristic of yours that serves you the best? <clears throat> I would say I'm a creative problem solver. Well, I've heard that that's pretty much what magicians are also. We're ultimately uh, problem solvers, right? Yeah, absolutely. Were you always a, a creative kid when you were growing up? Yeah, I think I was. Um, I got into magic very at a very young age. I was five or six when my uncle, uh, who was a professional magician in New York, my grandmother's brother, uh, came into town and uh, pulled a coin out of my ear. <laughs> and uh, I was hooked. And then uh, there was a local magic shop in Tarzana, California called Magic Emporium. And I would be able to ride my bike over there on the weekends and just hung out at the magic shop. And uh, after a couple of years of doing that, they gave me a job. And so I would sit behind the counter and um, show people magic so that they could buy it. That's amazing. I'm always happy to meet a, a fellow techie because when I was in college, I also studied theater, but my work study job was also working as a theater technician in our theater. And I really enjoyed the process of learning how lights work, learning how to build set pieces. What were some of the things that you really enjoyed when you were learning about technical theater? Oh, man. Uh, lighting was my number one. Lighting and special effects were my uh, number one uh, love in technical theater. Uh, I did everything from uh, the master electrician to learn how to be a lighting designer. And I had a mentor named Jerry Abbott who unfortunately recently passed away, but he taught by asking questions until I figured out my own problem. Uh, he never gave me the answer. And uh, I really responded well to that type of mentoring. Um, in college, um, I elevated myself to be in charge of the campus theater at Cal State Northridge. And I was in charge of all of the outside companies that would use the facility for whatever means they needed. And one summer, Doug Henning rented the theater for a month. Oh, wow. And I got to spend a month with Doug Henning and his wife, Debbie, and his manager, Steve Kirshner. So uh, I was a kid in a candy store. And uh, Doug saw my love for magic and took me under the wing and showed me some of the secrets of a professional magician, how to make a car disappear, how to do this. Um, I was, I was, uh, I don't know, I was an inquisitive kid and a little full of myself, I tell this story. So as I was standing on stage one day, uh, there was a metamorphosis trunk sitting on the side of the stage. And I turned to uh, Steve Kirshner, his manager, and I said, you know, I think I can do that trick because they had one at the, the magic shop. And Steve looked at me with this smile and said, oh, oh, you can, huh? And I said, yeah, I think I could get out of that. He said, well, let's try. So he pulled the lid off and I got in the box and he put the lid on upside down. 
and then upside sat, down <laughs> and then sat on the top of the lid. Well, after about four or five minutes of struggling, I knocked on the, the uh, can you let me out of here? <laughs> um, the other, the other fun story about that experience was, um, as part of his show that he was taking on the road, he did a close-up section where he had a camera and a just monitor and uh, he did a coins across routine. So I went home that night after seeing it and got my coins and brought them back in. I said, Mr. Henning, uh, would you mind helping me with my coins across routine? And uh, he said, yeah, sure. So every day at lunch, we spent 15 to 20 minutes working on his coins across routine. Wow. Uh, working on my coins across routine. So, so uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was an amazing experience that I had no idea how really special it was until I grew up and became a professional magician uh, and heard the stories of Doug Henning from other mentors of mine. Wow. You know, there's not a lot of people that can actually say that, you know, I got to work with Doug Henning. That sounds absolutely incredible. My mind is so blown by hearing that. I have to ask, what was Doug like? Uh, Doug was um, very, how do I put it? Um, very spiritual, very out there. Uh, he and his wife, Debbie, referred to them in public, Dougie Wuggy and Debbie Webby, <laughs> which was a little hard to take, but, you know, I wasn't about to say anything. Um, the other really special thing that happened is uh, Doug, during his Coins Across routine, used his golden nugget as a thing that attracted one coin to one end to the other. And after the three and a half weeks, uh, we loaded out his show, and it was two semis full of props and set pieces. So we were tired. The crew was tired, and we were sitting in the scene shop behind the stage. And all of a sudden, Doug comes running back on, back in. And I stood up and said, Mr. Henning, is there a problem? And he said, oh, no, no, I just wanted you to have this. And he gave me his golden nugget. Oh, Wow that I proudly wear on a chain around my neck. So this is the actual nugget that Doug Henning used uh, on Broadway. That is unbelievable. I'm sure you wear that proudly. Absolutely. What does it feel like to know that the person that you're working with is this international superstar in the world of magic? At the time, just it didn't really sink in. Uh, I was just so excited to spend the time with him. Um, I didn't put it in perspective, to be honest with you. I didn't realize how special it was that he took 15 or 20 minutes out of his day every day during that three-week period to sit just with me and talk magic and teach me how to do coins across. So I often ask uh, my guests what they felt the trajectory of their lives were going to be. So at an early age, did you kind of have an idea of what path you wanted to take? Was it always magic or was it something else? You know, magic was always a hobby. Magic was uh, my first love. But um, 
I didn't think that I would be able to make a living as a professional magician. Uh, so that's not the that's not where I really focused my attention. Uh, I want really wanted to be a lighting designer, and and there's magic in designing lights as well. Certainly, mm -hmm. you know you. I, I I was one of the few lighting designers who loved to run my own show, and because it was it was a an actor in the show as far as I was concerned, you know, because I could elicit reactions from the audience by the change in the lighting, um, and to hear an audience gasp because of a beautiful lighting scene was what I see that on. So, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to be in the professional theater. Do you like the idea of having control over every aspect of the show, including the lighting design and the sound design and the set design and all that? Cause I know that there are a lot of people who like to be, independent artists in the sense that they want to handle everything. Do you like that? Do you like to be hands-on with every single aspect of your show? To be honest, I do. Yeah. Um, I, I, costumes was not something that I ever really uh, explored and, and understood costume design. But as far as set and audio and sound design and uh, lighting design and special effects design, um, it was my vision. It didn't mean that I did everything, but I had a vision of the way that would work and I would work with the director and we would talk about the vision for the show. And then uh, I would help the other departments reach that vision. So at what point did you make the decision that magic was going to be the thing that you were going to commit to full time? Well, um, I, when I graduated college, uh, I started a computer consulting company. Oh, really? And I still own it to this day. It's called JDK Consulting. And we offer outsourced uh, IT services for businesses both in LA and New York. Um, and that's what allowed me the life that I lead now as far as finances are concerned. But in... July of 2002, I had a brain tumor. And when they removed the brain tumor, uh, they nicked the facial nerve, for, uh, causing my left-hand side of my face to be paralyzed. And as I recovered, it dawned on me that um, I started hiding from life. I didn't go in public. I didn't reach out to friends. Uh, I didn't want to be seen because I didn't like the way I had, the way I looked. And I think that that all stemmed from the minute I woke up in surgical recovery and both my parents were in the room and my dad was sitting by the bed holding my hand and smiling, but my mom was standing far away. As my eyes cleared, I looked at my mom's face and I saw one of horror. And I didn't really understand what it was till later, but my mom had lost the face that she so loved to look at. And I think that that's when I started internalizing the fact that my face had changed for the worse. So I turned to, for my recreation 
In my enjoyment, I turned to playing professional poker. Because at a poker table, no one cares what you look like. They just want your money, right? Right. And after six or seven years of doing that, I, I realized that the people that I was playing poker with and the people that I was uh, developing friendships with weren't the sort of people that I really wanted as long-term friends. So I stopped playing poker and I joined the Magic Castle. And slowly but surely, I auditioned and became a magician member at the castle and uh, started doing a trick here, a trick there. Um, and I started to realize that as I performed, audiences focused on my magic and my deformity disappeared. Now, that was my ultimate illusion. And then uh, I had one magician uh, named Phil Van Tee or El Ropo give me one piece of advice as I was doing a set uh, for, I don't know, 10, 10 or so people. And he said, John, I like your magic, but make it about them instead of you. And a light bulb went off. And for that moment, I completely re-scripted my show so that every magical moment happened because an audience member did something. They thought of something, picked something up. They did whatever it was. It was because they were making the magic happen. I was just the conduit. And the change in the audience reactions was night and day. And I knew at that point I was onto something. And uh, I started going to the castle more and more uh, to the point where I think I've done over 6,000 shows. Wow. And, you know, everybody says, how do you become a good magician? Flight time. <laughs> Very true. Well, I know that you have definitely used your paralysis as a very big teaching tool. And it's amazing to see how you've been able to really put yourself out there and show everybody that this is who you are. What was it that made you decide to use this as an opportunity to not just perform for others, but really speak to others and really teach people about how your look doesn't define who you are? I hid from cameras and mirrors for 12 years. Any chance there was an opportunity to take a photo, I was the one who went to the bathroom. I went and took his MBE. I, I didn't want to be in people's photos. Because deep down, I thought I was ruining the photo by being in it. And that all changed August 3rd, 2017, when I went to my first Magic Live convention in Las Vegas. And I was amongst the greatest magicians alive. And I remember going up to Jeff McBride, who I had recently met, and said, Jeff, can we take a picture together? And he said, well, sure, John, absolutely. And so at that point, I handed my phone to uh, another person and he took that photo. And throughout the rest of the couple days of the convention, I went around taking pictures with some of the greatest magicians and the magical minds around. And I got home and I sat in front of my computer and I uploaded the photos. And it dawned on me that if these great minds of magic 
had no trouble taking a picture with me. What was my problem? And that was the beginning of my healing moment. Wow. That's absolutely incredible. What has your experience been as you talk to people and you share your story with them? What has that experience like and how have people taken to your story? Well, the, um, I opened my act uh, with uh, an effect where I prepare the audience for why my face is paralyzed. I told them that I was in a, uh, had a brain tumor and when they removed it, they traumatized my facial nerve. But something happened to me when I was on the operating room table. Now, I'm not sure what it was because I, I was unconscious and I don't think you were there, were you? You, were there, no. you, weren't with the, you didn't have the facial mask, no? No, that wasn't me. That was me, okay. But all I know is when I recovered, I realized, well, I had acquired some new skills. And I kind of look around and left and right and make sure this seems like the biggest secret in the world. And then I whisper in a loud voice, guys, I am able to manipulate people's thoughts. And then I go on to do some mental magic. And the audience is sitting there go, wait, 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 wait. Could this be true? <laughs> and they really start paying attention. So when I do some, I do Colossal Killer, which is one of my favorite tricks, where I say, okay, in my wallet, I have a favorite playing card. And with your permission, I'm going to enter your mind. And I wait for them to give me permission. And I say, no, when I'm in there, I promise I will not look under the bed or behind the couch. <laughs> oh, and the bathroom, totally off limits. I don't want to see the stuff that's sitting on the floor in the bathroom. But when I'm in there, I'm going to implant the image of my favorite card. Do you see it? You do? Great. For everybody who does it, please name that card out loud. And no matter what card they announce, I reach in and I pull one card out of the wallet and it matches their, the card that they saw. And that's how I start my show. And, and the audience is completely engaged at that point. So my style, I mix mentalism with sleight of hand. I wouldn't say my sleight of hand is, is uh, it was probably a four or five, um, but it's the stories that I tell that audiences leave remembering. Well, you know, one of the things that I've talked to a lot of people on this podcast that are both magicians and improvisers is the idea of character and also the idea of a character being you and not you at the same time, but still you. And it looks like when we see you perform, it very much looks like this is a hundred percent John Kippen. Would you say that every performance you do, it's a complete showing of who you are? When I perform, I get an endorphin rush. So nothing that physically with me is bothering me at the time. I feel zero pain. So I am at my 100% best when I'm performing. And because I've done so many shows, my magic is second nature to me. My hands just know how to do the sleight of hand. So I can focus on the audience reaction. One of my mentors is Bob Ditch, and he taught me 
one thought, one person. And you so be, you have one thought to say, you look at one person, you make that thought. And then you turn to someone else and you make another thought, point. And it, feel, it makes them feel like they're in a room just with you. And this is a private show with them. I've also found that remembering their names, you know, I go and introduce myself to each person before I start the show. And I remember their names throughout the 20 or 30 minutes or however long the show is. And I use them during the performance. I say, hey, Luis, you know, would you mind thinking of a playing card? Because everybody loves to hear their own name. Mm -hmm. And they can't help but be engaged when they know that you're about to call them by their name. That's kind of my secret to audience management. What is the secret to remembering people's names? Because I tend to have that problem all the time and not just in performance either. Practice. Just doing it over and over and over again. You know, you know, I'm, I'm, if I'm performing for a group of 15 or 20 people, I might remember 12 of their names. So I just enforce and use the 12 that I happen to remember. And But everybody in the audience understands that I'm remembering all these names. And so they just assume that I remembered them as well. Um, but a lot of times, you know, it's, uh, I, heard, I learned from Harry Lorraine that you, whatever the sound of the name is, you associate it with something. So, or, you know, I have a friend named Luis. So, so I look at you and I picture you and them together kind of melding into one human being. And that's how I remember your name. So just little memory tricks. There is one trick in particular that I've seen you do on two separate occasions. And I don't know the name of it, but it completely blows my mind every single time where you have two people beside you and then you split the deck in half and each person has their own half of the deck. They freely select one card, put it on their chest, and you have no control of the cards whatsoever, yet you are somehow able to know exactly what card they picked. Now, of course, I'm not going to ask you how that's done, but... What was your process in creating that particular routine? Because it's just so amazing and it looks so clean and so simple. So how did you perfect that trick for yourself without giving away any secrets, of course? You know, I started doing it uh, at the castle where for those who've never been there on a busy Friday or Saturday night, it's wall to wall people. And uh, there's an upstairs area where there's uh, a line to get into one of the showrooms. And there'll be a group of friends in line. So I would go to the first person and I would hand them the deck. And I would have them go through it and make sure it looks like a normal, regular deck. And then I would disappear and I would ask them to pass the deck from person to person to person, having each person grab a card and put the rest back in the box and hold the card in between their hands so that I, can, I, I can't see the face or the back of the card. And then I would go down the line as they held their hands out 
and uh, I would tell them what card they were holding. And with you know, it's unfortunately the method once you know it makes pulling off the illusion easy. It's making it believable um, is the trick. Um, but it's it's one of my signature effects, and uh, I have not met another magician, at least that I've seen, who does it. Uh, I, I've become known for that illusion. So you definitely have ownership of that one particular illusion. Even though that it wasn't my creation, my presentation, yeah, it's it's definitely because, you know, it's, it's again, I'm looking in their eyes and I'm thinking, imagine the card, you know, and I, and I call it my Phoenix Rising illusion because I do it with a deck of Phoenix playing cards. So I talk about the, the deck as a Phoenix deck and the, the whole mythological story about how the the spirit of the phoenix rises so i say you know as you hold the cards in your hand your hands will get warm and as your hands warm so does the card causing the spirit of the card to rise and as the spirit of the card rises that's when i'm able to tell them what the card is what is your general approach in creating and working on a piece for your show? I do my best thinking in the shower and the few minutes before I go to bed. That's when I'm able to clear my mind. And that's when I come up with ideas. You know, I buy a lot of magic. And it, I organize it so that I kind of know where most of it is. But I don't start performing a trick the minute I learn it until I come up with a presentation and I go, yeah, I own one of those. And then I go to one of my cupboards and look for it and find it and then start building the routine. But I want the, you know, I, I one of my favorite illusions and as a public speaker, um, one of my secrets of public speaking is get the audience on your side the minute you walk out onto the stage. And the way I do that is, uh, I go up to the MC just seconds before um, they introduce me and I do a magic trick for them. And the one I choose is turning monopoly money into real money. So that when the host goes out on stage to introduce me, they are, their mind is blown. And their honest awe and wonder from what they just saw they communicate that to the audience and just the way they tell that story and the way they communicate to the audience. So that when I walk out on the stage, the audience is mine. The audience is completely ready to be wowed and amazed. Um, but I came up with the idea of doing extreme burn, which most magicians know where you turn a dollar into a hundred or whatever. But I, I like magic that brings you back to a time of your youth. You know, I tell the story about how when I was a kid, Sundays were game day with my folks and my mom, dad, and I would get together and we'd play Monopoly. And after whoever won, it was my job as a kid to clean up all the money. And as I'm cleaning up, I've got hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dollars. And I imagine what it would like to be able to put that money in my wallet and go out and spend it and be wealthy. And I think every kid who played Monopoly 
has that thought once in their life, at least once. Man, wouldn't it be great if I could spend this $500 bill and buy all the baseball cards or chewing gum or whatever they wanted. And so that's how I present it. I bring them back to a time where they were young, where they, where they dreamed, where they had an imagination. You know, people lose their imagination as they grow up. I think that that is one thing that I strive to do is we invigorate their imaginations. Well, you know, there are a lot of magicians, as I'm sure you're aware, where their presentation and their demeanor kind of makes it look like they're trying to show how cool they are and just how skilled they are. But then there's magicians like you where when we watch you, John, we really get a sense of you're really trying to share this experience with all of us. Is that kind of the focus of what you try to do? Do you want your show to look like, hey, everyone, this is an experience that we're sharing together? Absolutely. I consider myself a conduit to making the magic. You know, I have a, uh, I have a, a series that I started during the, the pandemic called Inside the Magician Studio, where I invite a top magician uh, via Zoom to do 20 or 30 minutes of magic. And then I do an interview with them uh, afterwards. And uh, my last question, it's very much like inside the actor's studio. Um, and the last question I ask is, what is your definition of magic? And I've given my definition of magic a lot of thought. But magicians that I ask that question of, very few of them rattle off a definition right then. They say, let me, can I get back to you on that? <laughs> and I say, sure. And, and a couple of days later, they reach out to me and said, you know, I went away, I went home that night thinking about you, your question. And it made me realize I've lost sight of why I do magic to begin with, why I started it. But the common denominator in all these definitions, and I've recorded 50 or 60, and you can find them if you're interested at meaningmagic.com. The common denominator is magic happens in the mind of the audience. That magic is not the trick. Magic is that experience that the audience has when they see something that their mind cannot explain. Yeah, it, it very much reminds me of an act that Penn and Teller do where they reemphasize that exact point where they invite an audience member up on stage and all of the magic is just for that one audience member. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they take a, a linking ring and, you know, the woman's eyes are closed, but and they make the woman think that the hoop is passing through Penn's neck and onto her arm. But of course, it's to reemphasize what you said, that the magic happens within our minds. So I think there's definitely a whole lot of truth in what you're saying. And I'm interested in what you're talking about, your Zoom show, the Inside the Magician Studio, because it sounds like an amazing, amazing thing. Who are some of the magicians that you've had the pleasure of speaking to? Michael Amar, Javi Benitez. Woody Aragon, uh, Harry Lorraine before he passed, David Williamson. Um, there are so many. I'm going to pull up a, a, a list real quick. 
uh, Adam Wil Wilbur, Adrian LaCroix, Arthur Tribbley, Bob Fitch, Bodine Blasco, Boris Wild, uh, Caleb Wiles, Ken McMillan, Daniel Roy, Danny Archer, Dardon, David Weagle, David Williamson, Derek Hughes, uh, Ed Ellis, Evan Disney, Fabian, Ron Harari, uh, Jake Scott Berry, Jason Latimer, John Armstrong, Jordan Mindbender, Joshua J, Carl Hine, Kyle Purnell, Monty Gilbert, Mark D'Souza, Mark Bentheimer. Um, the, the, the name goes on, and that's just through the M's. There are 168 videos in here. Uh, you've uh, talked to a lot of amazing people. And what I found so amazing is some of these magicians I certainly knew, but many of them I, I didn't. And I reached out to them and I shared the website inside the magician studio with them. And I name dropped a few of the magicians who had donated an hour of their time to perform on my Zoom. And that sold it. They didn't ask if there was any compensation. They just knew that they were amongst a huge list of wonderful magicians. Recently, uh, that's turned into a Inside Magician Studio lecture series. So I've had J. Scott Berry lecture. Um, this last uh, month, I had uh, Michael Breger. Next month is going to be Kyle Purnell. And then the following month, um, I have uh, Paul Gregor to, to be doing an hour, two-hour lecture, and I charge 20 bucks for it. Wow. I'm just so wowed right now. And uh, what's, what's amazing for me is now I'm friends with all these magicians. One of my best stories is I reached out to Javi Benitez. You know Javi? Yes, I had him here on the podcast. And this is right when the pandemic hit. And John, and he said, John, you know, I don't really feel comfortable with performing on Zoom. I don't have the technology. I don't have the camera. You know, I've seen other people do their Zooms and I just don't feel comfortable. And I said, Javi, my group are magic lovers. There's not going to be one person who's going to give you any attitude because something doesn't work. The purpose of my podcast, my Zoomcast, is to bring people back together since they can't see them in person any longer during the pandemic. And you will feel the love of the audience and give it a shot, right? Okay, I'll do my best, he says. So I had him on the podcast and he did amazing one little thing happened and he just said, he just moved on and we didn't care from a technical standpoint. And six months later, he called me and he was very emotional. He said, John, I don't know if you know it or not, but you, you, you saved my life. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, I didn't know with the pandemic hitting and all of my in-person engagements canceling, I didn't know how I was going to feed myself. I didn't know how I was going to make a living. And you empowered me to do try this Zoom thing. 
And it is what got me through the pandemic. So thank you for saving my life. You know, having a great like Javier Benitez, thank you so profoundly for just encouraging him to do his magic through a different medium was one of my biggest compliments. And we've become very close friends since then. That's so incredible. That's so incredible. And you know, I've I've heard you share multiple stories before about how you really have inspired a whole lot of people, not just magicians, but just regular people as well, you know, ordinary lay people in, in different areas. And I recently watched your your TED talk and I actually watched it again before coming on here. And I love how you began with this wonderful story about the little boy who started looking at you. And when you spoke to that little boy, you helped him kind of see a different perspective on it to the point where I think you even mentioned that he kind of wanted to be like you in a way. Well, yeah, I mean, this, I was out by myself with a, at a Tony Roma's near me and I was just having dinner and this kid, I don't know, five or six years old was not really interested in, in, in uh, eating. So he, turned around and looked over the back of the booth in between his mom and his dad. And he was just staring at me and he was really curious. So he got out from the booth and walked over to my table and looked up at me and said, Mr. What's wrong with your face? But before I had a chance to respond, his mom saw him and overheard him and immediately got up and grabbed him by the arm and yanked him back and said, don't bother the nice man. He has enough troubles already. And did I want to be bothered by a five-year-old asking for the story of my face? No. But I saw an opportunity to change a life, to make a person grow up being sensitive to people who were different. And I couldn't not engage with him. So I walked up to the table and I knelt down so I was on his eye level and I said, you know, you have a really good question. You see, I had a medical procedure that caused me not to like to, to lose the ability to move my face, but it's my new face and I like it because it's different. Well, it's different just like yours. And from that point, the kid was satisfied. His question was answered. But I looked at the mom and dad and they had faces of shame because they understood now that they were imposing their views on their child and preventing their child, almost prevented their child from experiencing someone who was different. And I remember the mom whispering to me, thank you, because she and the whole family learned an important lesson. Just because you're different doesn't mean that you're not as equal as anyone else in this world. My uh, speaking platform is being different is your superpower. When you learn how to accept your differences, it doesn't have to be as prominent as mine. It can be, you've got a big nose, or you're ever a seating airline, or you're overweight, or you're short, or you're tall. When you celebrate that difference, when you own it, 
and not up here in the head, but deep down in the chest. You know, when you say, you know, it's who I am. And it doesn't matter if other people don't like it. It's who I am and it's who I choose to be. You get this strength. And as you are your authentic self, you attract people to like you because they detect you're being authentic. And they don't understand it in those terms. They just know you're interesting and you're approachable. And they find you attractive. So I want everyone listening to know that I've never cried on the podcast, but I'm definitely crying a little bit now because what an amazing message to give. What an amazing uh, story to share. And I think it could be considered brave that you're able to put yourself out there so much and inspire others that feel different. How important is it for you for everyone to embrace who they are and how different they are? I need to share you another story and it's probably going to make you a little teary-eyed as well because it does me every time I tell it. I'm ready for it. Again, I was at the Magic Castle and I was just people watching, looking for a group that might be fun to do a show. And this woman was walking down the hallway and she was dressed in all black, very baggy clothes. And she was wearing a hat that reminded me of a witch's hat. And it was nowhere near Halloween. But she was looking down at the ground as she walked. So as she approached, I said, hi, how are you? She stopped because she was a little startled and looked in my direction. But her face said, just leave me alone. And she continued walking downstairs to catch up with the rest of her friends. Well, I didn't heed her, her, her wanting me to leave her alone. In fact, I caught up with them and I went to the, the group and I said, you guys having a great time? They were like, oh my God, yeah. And I said, have you seen any good close-up magic? And they went, no, not really. So we went over to one of those famous green tables in the corner. And I sat down and the woman who was dressed all in black, her name was Darren. And I put her to my right. And I made the show completely about her. I put her up on a pedestal. Because every magical moment happened because she did something. She was the true magician. And within two or three minutes of me starting the show, she started sitting up straight. And she removed the funny hat. She started making eye contact and she started smiling. And I could tell for the first time, at least in that night, whatever baggage she brought with her to the castle was gone. It was not in her mind any longer. And I finished my show and normally audiences get up and they'll say thank you. They'll give me applause or whatever and they'll move on. But this group wanted more. So I shared the story about how I hid from cameras and mirrors for over 12 years because I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. And it was that Magic Live convention where it suddenly dawned on me that my facial paralysis didn't need to define me if I didn't let it. And Darren stood up and she motioned for me to stand and I did. 
And she gave me one of these hugs that you don't soon forget. One of these bear hugs, like you haven't seen your sister in 20 years kind of bear hug. And she was holding on for dear life. And it seemed to go on for minutes, but it was probably 15, 20 seconds. And as she let go, she stood back and she looked up to me and she had tears in her eyes. She said, John, I want to, I need to share something with you. Four years ago, I had a double mastectomy because I have the BACA1 gene. Mm. And my mom, my aunt, my sister all had their breasts proactively removed. And I was the last in the family to do that. And when I heard your story and how you made me feel, how that I was able to forget what was had been on my mind for the last four years, that I was truly in the moment, you made it dawn on me that the fact that I had lost my breasts didn't need to define me. And I make a promise to myself with all of you as witnesses that tonight will be the last night I hide. And I pretty much fell back into my chair, totally overwhelmed emotionally. My goal for that magic show was to make Darren smile. That's my, that was the extent of what my expectation was, but to, through my story and my actions, reach someone on such a profound level to drill down to the core of what was bothering them in 25 minutes i realized that that's really what my mission is is to inspire people one interaction at a time and share my mantra of being different is your superpower and I continue to do that every time I perform. And I have dozens of stories of people who left my show feeling better about themselves. If John can do it, so can I. And uh, that's what why magic is so special to me. And that's why I've transitioned. I don't go to the castle very often anymore um, because I'm more interested in changing people's lives, making people understand the power within them to present them as them their own authentic self and to attract people as friends around them who truly care about them. Well, you weren't lying saying that that was going to make me more misty eyed. <laughs> well, we definitely see what people take away from watching you, but what about you when you hear these incredible stories. And when people say to you, John, thank you, because that helped me realize something of myself. What does that do for you personally? It makes me understand that I'm on the right track. That all the effort that I go through for designing a trick, implementing a trick, and performing a trick, it's all worth the effort. You know, I, I, love the premise of card to impossible location. I've done a couple versions of that where one example, I tell, I call it the in and out story where I was performing for a group of girls 
and uh, women, sorry, and um, they ended up being med students from UCLA. And after my show, they were curious about my facial prowess. And they said, can we ask you a couple personal questions? I said, sure. And they asked me about my face. Well, being med students, I was glad to share the nitty gritty details of the kind of tumor and the surgery and how long it was and the recovery and so forth, you know. And they were truly engaged because that was what they were studying in college. And as part of my routine, I almost always do a signed card to, to wallet, envelope, sealed envelope in my wallet. You did this at the Magic Castle as well. I Yeah, but I do that pretty much everywhere I, I perform. Because I've had so many people say, you mean my signed card is going to be in your deck? I say, yeah, it's going to be there forever. And I do that so I can remember you and our experience. Mm. And they feel genuinely uh, special because their signed card is something that even if it doesn't happen to be in the deck, it's in my roller deck, my, my folder of people's cards that I keep. I don't throw them away because they're mementos of that experience. So the woman that night, one of the students, her name was uh, Brittany. And uh, she signed the Seven of Hearts. So as the audience, as they decided they were going to leave that night, and it was pretty late, they hadn't eaten anything and they were hungry. So I overheard one of them say to the other, can we stop by the In-N-Out Burger on Sunset on the way back to UCLA? So that gave me a great idea. So I ran down to the back of the castle and I got my car and I waited for them. And five or six minutes later, they came out of the front of the castle, you know, excited, girls night out, little, little, um, little buzzed. And they start heading out and I start following them. Unfortunately, it was dark and they were so much, having so much fun that they didn't notice that I was behind them. <laughs> and sure enough, they went right to the in and out drive through and I'm right behind them in the drive through And when I got to the window to place my order, I handed the lady behind the window a $10 bill for a trouble that did me if they were run over and put their seven of hearts in the in and out bag. <laughs> And they drove home and I drove home. And the next morning, I found a message, Facebook message. WTF. <laughs> How did you get our card in our in and out bag? And I reached out and we had a nice conversation and we've become friends since then. I never really divulged the secret to how I did that. But an amazing thing happened about, oh, six, seven months later. I was at a little sushi bar in the valley called Sugarfish. And it's a very small, intimate, where the tables are next to each other. And I was there having lunch with a friend. And there was a guy and a girl next to me. And the guy was eyeing me like he knew me. And I get looked at all the time because of my facial paralysis. So I just ignore it. But there was a lull in the conversation. And this guy reached over and he said, you know, excuse me. I don't mean to interrupt, but. This is going to sound really, really weird, but are you the in and out magician? <laughs> he had heard the story from a friend of a friend 
of one of those girls who was there that night. And when he heard me talking about magic to my buddy and saw my face, he put two and two together and said, no, that's got to be him. So I realized that when you share a moment like that with people, they share that with their friends, even if they weren't in the car when the they got the when they got the bag with the card inside. And that magic trick lives on forever because of the many, 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 many people who tell that story. And I learned that some of the most, some of the greatest magic illusions happen when the punchline or the, the true reveal happens when I'm nowhere near them. I'm wondering if that's an interesting title to add to yourself, the in and out magician. I thought about that, but I also thought about the energy in the, the Me Too movement. Yeah, that's why I'm thinking it probably wouldn't be the best thing to use. <laughs> but that was my first thought. Yeah, it could have some negative connotations. Yeah. There's another There's another story. Um, one night, it was around 11.30, and after the main show at the castle let out, this couple came and sat at a table I was sitting at. And the guy looked familiar, but I couldn't place him. Um, and his name was Paul Zerden. Now, Paul won America's Got Talent in 2015 as a ventriloquist. And he was there with his fiance, Robin, who was in his show at Planet Hollywood in Vegas that he had gotten because he won AGT. But they were there just to see a friend, but they had to get, they had to basically go back to the hotel, take a nap, shower and change, because they need to be in Vegas the next day for a noon rehearsal. And Robin signed the two of hearts as part of my illusion. And when Robin got to the dressing room the next day at like noon, she found her signed two of hearts on the dressing room mirror in the dressing room at the Planet Hollywood Hotel. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I share the method because it's a perfect example that if you really have a dream, anything is possible. And you can get selective people who are powerful enough to actually make something that is impossible to you, but because of their position or who they are or what they do for a living, they can actually make that possible. And you can read how I did that in the uh, December issue of Conjuring Chronicles. If you go to conjuringchronicles.com, that's a monthly magazine that I and J. Scott Berry put out every month where we focus on a magician, we tell their story, we tell my interactions, and then I share some of my uh, impossible location stories. So in October was the in and out one, and, and in November one, excuse me, in the uh, in December one was the one uh, with uh, Paul. So uh, I welcome you if you're interested on how I actually did that without getting on an airplane myself. Uh, you can read about it in the Conjuring Chronicles. It's a free publication you, you can uh, you can subscribe to. I'm definitely going to look that up. I'd like to ask you about your documentary. You have uh, an award-winning documentary, John's Ultimate Illusion. 
what was that process like to make that film? So in the capacity of being an IT guy, um, I had a friend who was an office manager at a commercial production company. And he was also a amateur filmmaker. And he knew my story because we had become friends. And he said, John, I want to do a documentary on you. And of course, I was flattered because who wouldn't be? Um, I didn't really quite understand at the moment that I would be paying for the documentary. <laughs> and the, having an IT consulting company in Los Angeles, I run across a good number of celebrities. And one of my favorite friends who's a celebrity is Jamie Lee Curtis. She's become a lifelong friend of mine. And uh, I remember being at her house working on a computer issue and mentioning that I was toying with the idea of producing a documentary and kind of described what it was going to be about. And Jamie looked at me and didn't say anything, waiting for me to get the message. And finally I said, Jamie, will you be in my documentary? And she said, yes. <laughs> I didn't think it was going to take you that long to ask me. <laughs> and at that point, you know, with Jamie Lee wanting to be in it, um, I knew that we had to finish it. And uh, it did win, win a couple of awards. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a fun experience where, again, I got to t tell my story and share some of my experiences of uh, empowering people to be themselves and to find the joy in life, no matter what they were dealing with. You have such an incredible life. Jamie Lee Curtis is my friend. I worked with Doug Henning. I mean, he, it is just so amazing. Oh, oh, to just... I didn't tell you the other story. I don't know how much time we have, but you can always edit it out. Oh, um, no, share, share. We'll go as long as you want. One of my other stories is as a, a computer guy, my a very close girlfriend of mine brother worked for a guy named Bernie Human. Well Bernie Human was Zigreen Roy's manager. Really? Yeah. And at one point Roy wanted to learn how to use a computer. <laughs> really? So Bernie reached out to my girlfriend's brother and they hired me to teach Roy how to use a computer. So as the day came, I got to the airport and I flew to Vegas. And a limo picked me up at the airport in Vegas and drove me out to their uh, jungle palace, which was the Siegfried uh, Roy's home. Right. And someone ushered me out to this little bungalow in the backyard, which was kind of their studio, their mm -hmm. office. And I sat there and I pulled the laptop out of my bag that they had, I had bought for them and so forth. And a few minutes later, in came... Zigfried Roy. Zigfried sat in a chair facing us, and Roy sat right behind, right right next to me. And Zigfried just started laughing because he was just so incredible. He thought it was so incredibly funny that his partner in crime, Roy Horn, was going to try to learn how to use a computer. <laughs> so I started the lesson. Simply by, this is how you turn it on, this is how you shut it down, 
This is how you move with trackpad. And we spent, I don't know, 10 minutes. And Roy stopped me and said, John, um, I don't think this is really for me after all. And I said, Mr. Horn, a lot of people went to a lot of trouble to hire me to buy a laptop and bring it to you and sit with you. So indulge me, give it five or 10 more minutes. And he said, okay. So another five or 10 minutes passed and he stopped me again. He said, John, I'll make you a deal. I said, what's that? He says, well, if you take the laptop back, I don't, I don't really care what it costs my company. I'll let you be the guest at the Jungle Palace for the rest of the day. And you can be our personal guest at the show tonight. Wow. And I had seen their show in Vegas numerous times, but to be their private guest, I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't turn that down. No, absolutely not. So I passed everything up and they invited me inside to have lunch. And I had lunch with Zikreen Roy. And then after lunch, uh, this gentleman walked up and said, okay, John, here we go. And I said, here we go, what? And he said, oh no, you're getting the VIP tour. And so I got the tour of their jungle palace where they kept all their animals. Wow. And I got to pet a baby white tiger. No way. Yeah. All that just to get out of learning how to work a computer. <laughs> and uh, so at, at the end of the afternoon, I got back in the limo and the limo driver, I remember as he, he left because he was at the house the entire time. He said, now, who are you again? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I don't know. I'm some poor schmuck who just got to experience a experience of a lifetime, I guess. He said, I've worked for Zeke Roy for years and years, and I've never seen anyone get that kind of treatment. So funny story. So, you know, I got to the, the box office and went up to the box office and the box office manager came out and said, John, I got some bad news for you. I said, oh, yeah. Um, the show is completely sold out. Every last seat is spoken for. And even, even Ziegler and Roy's private seats have been given away. So would you mind seeing the show from the lighting booth? Ooh. And my eyes lit up. And I said, are you kidding me? I'm a theater, I was a theater major. I would love to see it from the lighting booth. So the stage manager comes down and she walks me up to the lighting booth and sets a chair right next to her. And I got to experience the show sitting right next to her. That is so incredible. <laughs> and a great full circle for you as well. Yeah. Wow. You know, I've had the opportunity to speak to Javi Benitez, who we just spoke about. I also got to speak to Franz Harari and Jeff McBride and Carissa Hendricks and a lot of these other magicians who I've been fans of since I was a kid. Uh -huh. And I'll share that for me, there's a big part of me that kind of feels like, man, why would these people want to talk to me? You know, I guess I, I deal with a little bit of imposter syndrome in a sense. Mm -hmm. Do you kind of have that as well when you get to talk to these amazing people? And especially after an experience like that, meeting Siegfried and Roy, do you ever have that when you talk to these people? 
I'm going to be honest. Um, every person you just mentioned are personal friends of mine. Those people understand their role in magic and their responsibility to the art form. And every one of those people that you mentioned give back to the art form that treated them so well. And it's that desire to give back. The reason why I do the Inside the Magician Studio Zoom every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, and I invite anyone who wants to, to go to the website, uh, johnkippen.com, and sign up, and, and you'll get the Zoom link. Um, the reason I do this monthly magazine is to give back to an art form that changed my life. And I think that's what you see in these great magicians who are so accepting of you and wanting to share their love for the art form of magic. I think that's the one common denominator with all the people you mentioned is that they understand how magic made them who they are and they want to share that with the world. I remember Jeff McBride had a, a great quote because he talked a lot about magic being shared and how important that is. And I remember on the famous um, PBS documentary, The Art of Magic, one of the quotes that he said that has always really stuck with me is, a good magician never says, I'm a magician and you're not. A good magician says, I'm a magician and you can be too. And I think that definitely rings true with him and all these other people that we're talking about. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, when you focus on the audience, when you're doing magic, they become the magicians themselves, whether or not they realize it or not. Because without their participation, the magic would just fall flat. And so they each and every person uh, who is a part of a magic show becomes a magician in their own right, whether or not they realize it or not. And what I also love is that I've, I'm glad that I called this podcast improv and magic because I've been finding so many parallels to the two. And from what you just said, there's definitely a parallel where both art forms celebrate the art of yes. And, you know, mm -hmm. improv, it's obvious because that's how you build a scene together. But in magic, you get to experience that yes end with the audience. And I think that's so incredible. Um, I mentor other musicians. And uh, it's funny. Um, on our first session, almost every time, the magician and I sit next to each other. And the first thing they do is pull out a deck of cards. And I immediately say, oh, we won't be using those today. And they look at me going, huh? What? What do you, what do you mean? We're not going to talk about card tricks. Right. <laughs> and it's like, no, you can, that's not what I'm here to teach you and to guide you. You can learn how to do a double lift or a glide or whatever, a fan or a force, a million different places. You can learn it online. You can read a book. You can buy a DVD. We're going to talk about why you are choosing magic as your art form and what magic means to you and some of your life experiences that we're going to design a trick around that life experience 
So when you go to performance with people, they see how authentic you are and they see your passion because you're talking about something that you love in your life or brought you joy. And that joy comes out when you're performing that illusion because it's about something that you love to do. And that's the interactions uh, and the special moments I have with people that I mentor. But I stress that, you know, improv is so important because improv allows everything, every show, something is bound to go wrong. You know, I was doing a a show where someone had a fainted and they had been standing. So they hit the deck, you know, and, and knowing how to pick up where they left off, you know, got the medical attention and got them safe and then picked up, made, made a little comment and then moved on, you know, knowing how to, I've had, I've had spectators break props that I've handed to them. And knowing how to deal with that on the spot, in the moment, is is what I learned studying improv in college. And it's such an important exercise into how to be in the moment. So anyone listening to this podcast, if you really want to take your magic to the next level, find a local improv group in your neighborhood, in your area, and join up for some improv class. Um, It will remove any of your inhibitions of saying the wrong thing or whatever, being inappropriate. And you will learn how to live in the moment and be ready for the unexpected. Truer words were never said. John, I have one more question for you. Uh-oh. And you've said so many inspiring things so far, and I know you're going to hit us with something even more inspiring with this last question. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you'd want everyone else to hear? Dream and follow your dreams, no matter who in your life is a naysayer. John, I have been so inspired and motivated and invigorated by you. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. And I wish you all the best for everything for you in the future. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful hour that we spent together. So I'd like to share with all of you that after this interview, I felt very rejuvenated and inspired. John said a lot of things that were exactly what I needed to hear at that very moment. And maybe there were some things that you needed to hear as well. But I hope we all take John's message to heart today. And remember that being different truly is your superpower. I'd like to sincerely thank Mr. John Kippen for his time today. And I invite you all to visit his website, johnkippen.com, where you can learn more about his performances and talks, find information for his documentary, John's Ultimate Illusion, and his show, Inside the Magician's Studio, featuring many amazing and well-known magical performers. Remember to keep following your dreams no matter what, my friends. Thank you all for being here, and I'll catch you next time here on Improv and Magic. Um.